what I mean is that I have marks in my bones and you have them in your mouth. It's like a key point that like the idea that there's a lot of really interesting stuff in marks, but you have to work it out for yourself. You're just like, does this make sense to me? If you can give people some sort of control over the lives, if they have more control about what goes on in their workplace, if they have access to what they need in their lives, to housing, to healthcare, to food, then inequality starts, you know, losing importance. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president. It is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. And yes, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. In the past decade, we have seen modern monetary theory gain followers from all over the political spectrum. It's been making inroads among Marxists, but occasionally I find myself in arguments with those who pretty much reject it out of hand. A few years ago, I invited my friend Nathan Tankus from the Modern Money Network to break down some of the roadblocks and dispel the notion that MMT is incompatible with Marxism. This excellent interview is just as important today as it was then. So I wanted to bring it to our Macro and Cheese audience. I opened by telling him of my frustrating encounters with Marxists who push back against MMT. Nathan Tankus. Welcome to Real Progressive, sir. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, you, you encounter this all the stuff all the time. And of course, you know, as being a New York leftist, you can imagine that however much you get it, I get it 20 times more than you. I mean, I go to events at places like Verso, which is a famous left publisher. I go to events of dissent. So I'm regularly encountering people, or I should say some people who are sympathetic, knowledgeable, and free and some people who are more knowledgeable about Marx and who Marx was citing than your average person on the street. But you will, of course, encounter the person who is very dismissive of MMT, of chartalism, they think because of their Marxist background. And of course, you know, the Marxist tradition is a huge, very heterogeneous tradition. You know, we went into all sorts of different directions over, you know, now 150 years now, if not more. And so, you, of course, you're going to get things that are completely inconsistent with MMT. But you're also going to get things that aren't. And, you know, there is a strand of tradition going straight from Marx that definitely influenced post-Keynesians and then MMTers down the line. And so we'll be getting into a little bit of that tonight. I want to tee up a couple of subjects that I'm sure you'll touch on as we get through this. You know, Ajamu spoke specifically to me about labor theory of value. He spoke specifically about capital flight. And they didn't quite understand the fact that, you know, hey, if the state's able to create money out of thin air, how does that impact, you know, labor theory of value? And how does that impact labor and so forth? I want to make sure that we address these very important things. Um, so first things to say about the labor theory, it's important to be clear what, that what it's talking about. What the labor theory of value is about, you know, before you even get to labor specifically, the biophysical resources, the produced goods and services, that all that emerge in production. And that's an important distinction because there are a lot of other theories of value where value emerges in places other than production. And things that we need are created, for example, in mainstream economics, value is created by people's subjectivity. People subjectively saying, oh, I value that a lot. Their utility is what ascribes value to things. First of all, it's important to note that MMT is focusing on how the monetary system works, but it's not denying that a surplus, goods and services that we can use for other purposes besides our basic subsistence, are produced. No one is saying that money is alchemy, that you can print a bunch of money or create a bunch of bank deposits. And that can create goods and services out of nothing. No, those goods and services still have to be produced. 
So there's nothing about MMT or post-Keynesianism that denies that essential idea. But it is true in Marxian terms, in order for goods and services to have their value realized, in order for them to be sold, they need to be purchased. In order to be purchased, people doing the purchasing need to be able to buy it. And that goes back to Keynes, effective demand, you know, post-Keynesianism, chartalism. And there are plenty of people, not only in the Marxist tradition, but also in the post-Keynesian tradition, that trace the idea of effective demand, the idea that it's demand that determines how much goods and services that are out there, that there's the ability to produce them, and that supply doesn't create its own demand trace that idea to Marx. And Marx has really famous criticisms of economists, John Baptiste Say, and Say's Law. And, you know, some of the most strongest criticisms of Say's Law, which Keynes followed along and post-Keynesians followed along and Chartalists followed along and MMT, came, can be traced to Marx's original writings. Now, that doesn't everything that Marx ever wrote is consistent with what we would say now. You know, Marx, if you look at the collected works of Marx and Engels, it goes volumes and volumes. And there's even more stuff, especially later stuff on finance, which apparently still hasn't been published in English. And it's just started to get published in German the last decade or so. But there's certainly a tradition that follows there. You know, someone like Michal Kolecki, who was famous Polish economist, went to Cambridge in the 30s and was seen as sort of a forerunner or developing the same ideas at the same times as Keynes. Joan Robinson famously preferred his version, the theory of effective demand over Keynes's version, traced his vision of accounting his famous profits equation, which is sort of a forerunner to stock flows consistent economic, a big, huge thing in chartalism, traced that back all the way to volume two of Capital. You know, widely seen, especially among post-Keynesians and Marxists and all these other non-mainstream economists as sort of the origin of stock flow consistent modeling, or at least a, a large precursor to it. Very, very cool. And so when you say stock flow, can you explain to our viewers what, in fact, that means, stock flow consistent model? Folks, take note, this is important. Sure. So the basic idea with stock flow consistent models is if you want to understand something that's working in an entire economy, is you need to trace everything that's going on in. You need to be able to define flow. Flow is just the amount of something that is either produced or purchased over a period of time. You know, an analogy that people like is the bathtub metaphor, where a flow is the rate at which water is coming out of the faucet and going out the drain. And a stock is the level of the water of the bathtub at a point in time. And so the idea is that you have to make sure that, you know, flows are always going somewhere. They're always increasing a stock and flows are always leaving somewhere, decreasing a stock. And that you need to understand that economy, especially, you know, a monetary system is closed system in the sense that everything has to go from somewhere, come from somewhere and go somewhere else. And so the idea is you need to be able to trace where everything's going. And it's only when you're able to kind of have that, you know, full established view, you're able to really see what's going on in an economy. If you just try to Make sure you can see the fall of the flows, but you're not following the stocks, private debt accumulating relative to GDP, you know, how much public debt is out there relative to GDP, that you're not really knowing what's going on in the economy. So a big example would be someone like Steve Keen's work. So if you just follow the flows, you might know how much private debt is being created each year. If you don't follow the stocks, you won't know that 2006, there's 150% of private debt relative to GDP, which is huge, and that this might cause a crisis. So stock flow consistent modeling is crucial in order to be able to see something build up and see a crisis happening. It's widely seen that you can trace that to Marx's volume two. So let me ask you, Nate, given that most Marxists tend to not want to hear anything about the monetary system, they tend to bypass the creation of money and they jump straight to things like fairness and workplace ownership. And there's like very clear balkanization or demarcation or whatever you want to say between money creation, which is agnostic. It's not political. It doesn't really have a ideology behind it. It's kind of like a science. It's a system. It shows how things go from A, B, C. On the other side, though, without understanding the underlying monetary system, I have frequently called Marxists religious priests in their own right. They're talking about beliefs as opposed to talking about the underlying factors that go within. 
this chasm creates an unnecessary speed bump in people understanding modern monetary theory. They're not in conflict with one another. I would say that that's certainly true, although I would say it's not universal among Marxists. There's a lot of Marxists who have you know, major dialogue with post-Keynesians and with Chartalists. There's people like Ricardo Bellafiore from Italy who consistent economist, someone who gets his work reviewed by Ray and cites people like Ray and, and all this. And, you know, of course, Ray himself and people like Matthew Forsetter had written about Marx, talked about relationship with their views. I would say that there is, you know, something to what you're saying, though. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but there's this famous essay by Joan Robinson called Open Letter from a Keynesian to a Marxist. And it's famous for this exact point that, like, you know, I read Marx and I find it fascinating and there's so much in here that's important. But like I talk to you guys and you guys are just like telling me how he's a genius without really telling me anything else. You know, her famous line about this is what I mean is that I have Marx in my bones and you have him in your mouth. It's like a key point that like the idea that Marx, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in Marx, but you have to work it out for yourself. You're just like, does this make sense to me? And there is an instinct among a certain strand of Marxists who just know it's the truth and they just have to figure out how it's the truth rather than picking and choosing and seeing, like, does this make sense to me? Does this not make sense? And that doesn't mean you shouldn't Marx, you know, a foundational person in the history of economic thought. So if you can see if there's a way your views are consistent with him, that's important to do if there's some trace back there. But ultimately, if you concern something that you think is just completely wrong, you have to push against it and say, no, I, I, I think differently about this. I also say that a lot of the most religious people about Marx, in my experience, are people who haven't read a ton. Like I've talked to people who I won't name, consider themselves convinced Marxists. And you try to talk to them about volume one or volume two, or even volume one, but something more likely the theories of surplus value, and, which is, you know, this manuscript from the 1861 uh, to 1863 that's really interesting. And, you know, they, their eyes glaze over. They're like, you know, as, as John Robinson says, they say a Marx is a genius. And you just go like, well, all right. Uh, yeah, the, the, the quote, original quote is, how could he make a mistake? Don't you know that he was a genius? And he gives me a little lecture on Marx's genius. And I think to myself, this man may be a Marxist, but he doesn't know much about geniuses. Your plodding mind goes step by step and has time to be careful and avoid slips. Your genius wears seven league boots and goes strolling along, leaving a paper chase of little mistakes behind him. And who cares? I say never mind about Marx's genius. Is this a stock or is it the flow? Then the Marxist gets rather huffy and changes the subject. And I think to myself, this man may be a Marxist, but he doesn't know much about riding a bicycle. He doesn't know much about doing it himself. So what do you think is the attraction, if you will? Is it an identity that people cling to that prevent them from seeing beyond it? Yeah, so I would say the caution there is that a lot of the more people who are believing rather than thinking about Marx are the kind of people who are more vigorously promoting their thought on the internet and attacking other things. I've encountered certainly plenty of people who consider themselves some type of Marxists who are very open in having, uh, in having these kinds of discussions. And of course, people who are scholars, people who are academic in this area, there's certainly people who have committed a lot of time to this and want to see a consistency in Marx, but they're also open in, in talking about it and in tracing the intellectual route. People like I mentioned, like Bella Fiore, people like Fred Mosley. There is you know, a Marxian tradition there. There are plenty of people who were influenced by Marx who went on to develop post-Keynesian. Minsky, of course, is you know, a famous example who sort of didn't cite Marx all that much because... You know, he opened up his career during the McCarthy era, certainly was very influenced by Marx and there's stories from his son about, you know, when he asked, you know, what to read on economics being handed cap before anything else. I think the thing to emphasize is that, A, there's nothing inherently understanding how the monetary system works that goes against seeing surplus value as being sourced in production. B, there's nothing in MMT that says that owning the means of production is a productive act in and itself. I mean, you... You'll have certain people, argue people like Steve Keen, most famously, that isn't just workers, but is also a means of production, first said by John Robinson and then later by Keen and other people. Just because, you know, means of production might be productive of surplus doesn't mean owning them is inherently productive. 
the ownership as giving the ability of capitalists to extract a surplus out of our biophysical resources and out of uh, human beings, while also saying that the owning of the things isn't there, isn't it necessarily productive. There's nothing about MMT that says the government is good or going to necessarily act in your interest. There's nothing even in MMT that says that the state isn't managers of the ruling committee of the bourgeoisie, the ruling class. There's nothing inherently inconsistent with, you know, non-Marxists seeing that how money driven American politics is and seeing how you can use money to have an outsized voice in American politics and even potentially control political parties. There's nothing in MMT that says that stuff isn't true. On the other hand, you know, MMT might make it easier to make the case of having public finance for elections, which would at least have some effect in terms of making the country more democratic. The fundamentals of, of what people get out of Marx, about seeing class antagonism, essentially dictatorship by capitalists and a overwhelmingly dominant control of our lives and being able to you know, tell us what to do from nine to five or even longer. There is no inherent conflict, but you maybe you won't be able to swear by every single word in capital or earlier writings that you could before, but maybe it wasn't a great idea to swear by every word in the first place. I think my concern, Nathan, is that as we approach trying to unfuck our world, unfuck our country, unscrew it up, right? Even, let's just say hypothetically, we all had this goal, totally Marxist compliant society tomorrow. It wouldn't happen. It couldn't happen that quickly. There's going to have to be some sort of transition regardless. And so what we end up doing, and I'm watching this happen in our movement over and over again, the minute we move the football ever so slightly, people are jumping far down the road. Oh, we want a resource-based economy. Oh, we want this. Oh, we want that. And the reality is, is that no matter what, there's going to happen in phases. There's no way to just rip and replace unless there's some sort of a cataclysmic event, at least in my mind, I can't see it. What, what are some expectations that people that are born-again Marxists, that are trying to learn modern monetary theory and are politically active, what are some things they can expect or some, some wins that they can expect in a meaningful sense along this trajectory to their final destination, if there is ever such a thing? What would you say is that, you know, some things that they can expect along the way? What, how does MMT facilitate that? Well, I think first it's important to say that, you know, whatever else you want to say about Marx, Marx was a theorist of capitalism. He wanted to understand how capitalism worked. Of course, he wrote the Communist Manifesto, but that's not really laying out a roadmap. And that, of course, is also an early piece of writing well before he kind of really fully, to the extent he ever did, fully developed his theoretical apparatus. So it's important to understand, you know, whatever your views on socialism or communism or any of that stuff. That doesn't really touch like 95%, even more, of what Marx wrote. Marx fundamentally was just always trying to figure out how capitalism worked. And so nothing about Marx stands or falls about your view about the next society. In terms of being a radical, in terms of having, you know, maybe some of the same broader political convictions of Marx or other people, I would say that plenty of Marxists I know. Jackman is probably the most famous, you know, stand bearer of this right now. Don't really have any fundamental belief that we're going to have some sudden revolutionary struggle and create the new world instantly. Nearly every Marxist, radical, leftist I know doesn't have that sort of vision right now. Maybe that is a lack of vision, but, you know, universally, it seems to think that there is some uh, non-reformist reform. There's a whole debate in the Marxist tradition about reform versus revolution. Um, and one of the ideas that has sort of been developed, you know, to try to deal with this historical argument and adjust it to uh, present conditions is that we have ways that we reform society, but they don't just stagnate us into not getting past capitalism. They're things that help propel us and develop society in a direction we might eventually move beyond capitalism. And I know plenty of leftists who see the job guarantee as a non-reformist reform, as something that reforms that genuinely makes life under capitalism better, but also that creates the seeds about developing alternative ways of living your life, alternative ways of producing. Of course, job guarantee sets up sort of laboratory for developing other sorts of ways of producing that aren't attempting to get at a surplus of money. 
And in Why Minsky Matters, Ray, in his biography of Minsky, or his intellectual biography of Minsky, explicitly suggests that a job guarantee could be used to fund cooperatives, that, that a job guarantee could essentially pay the wages of cooperatives, and that that could be one way in which the job guarantee could contribute to being a laboratory. So there is a long tradition of that. And of course, there is also a long radical tradition of supporting a job guarantee. There's a review of Black political economy. Uh, was, you know, especially in the early 70s, a strong supporter of his job guarantee. Of course, Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King were supporters of the job guarantee. And there, there's a whole civil rights tradition around, you know, and, the, and of course, the original civil rights uh, march on Washington in 1963 was called the March for Jobs and Freedom. So there certainly is a left tradition about our main uh, policy program, which is the job guarantee, and seeing it as a, a non-reformist reform. I don't think there's anything particularly troubling for that for a lot of leftists I know. Of course, you know, even Jacobin and Baskar Sankara, those people are explicit, at least at times, about supporting a job guarantee. So I don't think that any of that is particularly troublesome from a left point of view. Now, of course, there are people who disagree, who don't think there's any such thing as a, as a non-reformist reform. And for those people, they might not find MMT particularly useful in terms of fighting for something practical that they're interested in. But A, you're going to have to understand how money works if you're going to build a post-capitalism system and also to de debate whether you want to get rid of money. And there's a long debate about that in revolutionary times that I think would have certainly benefited from MMT ideas. But for most leftists I know, I don't actually think this is uh, much of a conflict. So uh, Scott Ferguson raises the question, what about dispelling specific allegedly Marxist arguments against MMT that prevent us from acting on what MMT make possible? Yeah. Um, so I'd say the one big thing is the one thing you mentioned earlier, which is uh, what I would sort of call a quasi-Marxist argument, which is uh, what about capital flight? This is, this is a really popular one. I mean, you can almost, I mean, it's a running joke among friends of mine that what about capital flight is the answer to almost every question that, you know, a Marxist asks. You know, if someone asks them, what do they want for breakfast? They, I, they go, what about capital flight? <laughs> I think, yeah, it's, it's, it, it can get ridiculous at times. I, so uh, what I would say in the capital flight point is, first of all, what do you mean? This, you know, I, I find often puts Marxists on their heels that Marx is all about not buying into essentially mystifying BS and buying into things that mystify what's actually going on. And for all the discussion among Marx, where he's trying to distinguish between different forms of capital, whether it's capital in an inventory form that he calls cap, uh, commodity capital, whether it's means of production, whether it's uh, variable capital and constant capital, which is just sums of money that are going to be used to pay wages or sums of money that is going to be able to use to buy uh, intermediate inputs, you know, things that you use in the production process that aren't labor and buy machines. When people say capital flight, they're never clear on what they mean. Do they mean that, you know, literally capitalists are going to be physically picking up machines and, you know, transporting them out of the country? Now, of course, that happens sometimes, you know, famously during NAFTA, there was apparently, you know, machines that were packed up in factories and driven across the border into Mexico and set up in new factories. But that's very rare. What I would say a mystifying view of this, you know, capital flowing around the globe, jumping from here and there at a moment's instant, the physical stuff stays there. And you know, no matter what, even if you have, you know, countries where you can allegedly say that there was capital flight, most of the physical stuff is still there. So you have to be clear about what you mean. Now, of course, money can, in, in some sense, or ownership claims can go across borders. But then suddenly we're in a conversation about the payment system and about the monetary system, something that these supposed Marxists are not supposed to be, don't want to talk about and is irrelevant. Well, if you own a bunch of stock, you know, 10% of a stock in a U.S. company, and you want to transfer that into a form that's usable to you in Beijing, well, there's no way for capital to flow unless you sell your shares. And if for you to sell your shares, someone with dollars has to buy shares. So you still have to have a buyer on the other side. And then you, and then it's still not good enough because you still have these U.S. dollars in a bank account in the U.S. Well, you're going to have to sell them for some yuan and someone is going to have to buy those dollars from you. So it looks from my point of view that no dollar has left the U.S. The physical machines in that company haven't left the U.S. The, the stock ownership is still, the, all those stocks still exist. All that's happened is the owners have changed. Okay, 
So capital flight has happened. But what does that matter? Now, the big thing where this could be important is it can affect the exchange rate. So if you have a whole bunch of people who sell their stocks or sell their bonds or sell ooh, their government bonds and then sell them for yuan or for euros, well, then you can depreciate the exchange rate. And, you know, the exchange rate can go down even large amounts, 10, 20 percent. And that might be painful for people. The prices of imports go up. Of course, export industries, quote unquote, benefit. And it might or might not change our, our trade balance, but the fundamentals are still there. All the means of production are still there. All the lands, the buildings, all that stuff is still there. It might have a negative effect, but just because the exchange rate has depreciated 10% doesn't mean that you can't still hire people with a job guarantee or still buy things that are, uh, that are sold in dollars. There's nothing, you know, inherently has changed. Now, there are Southern countries where this can be a self-fulfilling process that can be devastating. Now, a big example would be the East Asian crisis in 1997. But what was the big thing there was that you had people in South Korea and in Malaysia who owed dollars. They owed foreign currencies, and the depreciation of the exchange rate increased the burden of their debts. You know, and, and MMT has never denied that if you have a whole bunch of foreign-denominated debt, then your exchange rate can go down, and that can really, you know, harm your financial system, harm your economy, harm domestic residents. You know, no MMT has ever denied that, and in fact, has explicitly commented on. And part of the whole point is warning about the dangers of foreign-denominated debt. But the important thing is to be clear about what the processes we're talking about and what the causal mechanisms are. And you know, a lot of times when you talk to to people who are invoking this capital flight argument, they are doing that without really regard to what's going on. What is the underlying biophysical relationships? What are the underlying ownership relationships? What's going on with the payment system? And once you do that, you see that things look very differently when you're in a country like the U.S. that doesn't have a bunch of foreign denominated debt and, you know, has its own currency than those other countries. And, you know, and a lot of invoke the Greek example or other examples from the Eurozone, which, of course, MMTers have been were very early into talking about the potential dangers in the Eurozone. Professor Kellen's book in 2003, I think it's called The State, the Market and the Euro about how potentially uh, dangerous the euro situation was and how unsustainable the euro was. This is, you know, an extremely early call about the possibility of a crisis in the eurozone. And so I think that that gets into the other side of this, is that a lot of people say, well, this isn't relevant. This only applies to the United States or a few countries. Part of the point is that we're highlighting exactly what the dangers of not being a monetary sovereign is and what you need to do to get on the right side of that. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. So, you know, I wanted to bring up something that's important here. We get into a lot of fights here, quite frankly, about the idea of eating the rich and the idea of taxing the rich and taxing wealth and going after this, that, and the other. And there's an assumption. Now, mind you, I know Mark's uh, started getting into some stuff for our conversation earlier tonight um, where you had said that he started getting into some understanding about how state money works. But the idea here is, is that most people in our modern society are, are not six feet under from 100 years ago. They're here and now, and they've only read selective pieces. So when you try and explain to them that taxation is deleted, that the federal taxes come in, they purge reserves, whatever you want to say, however, however technical you want to get about it, bottom line is they aren't reused. There's, they're gone. They, they don't do anything. So the real emphasis, in my opinion, needs to be on rectifying the uh, lack of 
income for the 99%. And when I try to explain that since taxes don't fund anything, they don't actually pay for stuff. They drive currency. They don't actually pay for things. They don't actually get redistributed at the federal level. When I try and say that to them, they still harken back. Oh, he's saying that we shouldn't tax the rich or whatever. And, and the point is, is that in, in my understanding of the thrust of modern monetary theory, the key to getting us to uh, both income inequality, solving that problem and, and solving many others is indeed through full employment, through the federal job guarantee, which takes the uh, most vulnerable of us out of the business of borrowing to pay for bread, out of the business of borrowing to pay for electric, out of the business of borrowing to pay for basic necessities, and allows them instead to uh, survive without going to 22% interest rate private debt that is driven as a scarcity of dollars by Friedman-esque kind of you know, economic policies, it seems to me that these Marxists don't understand that since taxes are deleted, that in order to help the bottom out, primary help is giving them access to options and financial instruments, if you will, whereas the top, we can tax the hell out of them after we solve the suffering. I don't quite understand why they don't get that. And that's a key issue to me in them not understanding the money system. They, they only understand this one idea and they've eradicated any kind of logic beyond that. Can you talk about that for a minute? Well, I think one of the parts that I think is really ironic about that is the household wealth of the rich, the rich as households, as as Marx would say, uh, capitalist as man about town. That part, you know, element isn't where the control is. That isn't where they, you know, in, in, in Marx's language, control the means of production. So you can tax the crap out of uh, the the rich and you can and, you know, we might even think that's a positive thing, but that doesn't do anything to affect their control of the means of production. You know, they might them as, you know, men about town might make less political contributions. They might consume less luxury goods, less capitalist consumption. And we might think that that's a good thing. And you redistributing resources away from being burnt on making sure all the yachts look nice and they can go uh, go around on yachts. The control isn't really on the household side. So part of the importance, part of them, something that, you know, Charles would agree with is that taxing the rich doesn't actually do anything to get rid of their control. They, they're still setting prices. They're still doing all, all of this stuff. Um, so that, I think that's one important point to make. The other point to make that I think where Marxists miss is that some separating taxing the rich from spending on social programs, the point isn't to defend the rich and to, you know, making sure that they have all the good things in life. The point is a political point that when you connect taxing the rich to doing these social programs, you A, limit your social programs to whatever you can tax out of them and whatever overseas accounts you can find. B, you're giving them a false control. So for example, a professor of mine, uh, Josh Mason, uh, who's a Marxist, but also pretty sympathetic to MMT here, rightly points out that when you say the capitalists fund the government, either as people paying taxes or buying bonds, you're saying that they have control over the government in their capacity of being money owners. And that's not true. Now, they might have political control through campaign contributions, but A, that's something that politicians are actively conceding. They're choosing to cede to their wishes. They can make a different decision in an office, even as difficult as that is. But you're exaggerating that they're important to the system. Frankly, you're also making it more difficult to move beyond capital. Because, you know, in a certain limited way, you're implying that we need them. You know, if you want to say that the means of production are the true source of wealth, well, part of that is saying that capitalist money is just some claim and we don't need it in order to do what we want with the means of production. And I think that that's an essential point, too, that when you talk to a lot of these people and they talk about taxing the rich, they present it as this radical thing. But really what you're saying is capitalists are too important and that can't get rid of them. But you're also saying that the way we can reorganize our society is limited. Part of, you know, looking past the veil of, of money and looking at what's really going on and, you know, what's really going on with means of production and production is seeing the monetary system for what it is and seeing the importance of taxation and tax receivability behind it. And so MMT argument explicitly against taxing the rich. 
The point is to make our policy program of taxing the rich separate from our policy program of, say, full employment or more public services. And that it's crucial for these to be separate things. I want you to correct me on something. If I'm wrong, if I'm right, I want you to back me up. Okay. Okay. My thoughts are, and Ellis Winningham and I have, you know, I have really just locked into this. And if I'm wrong, I need to change it ASAP. Okay. But since the act of taxing and the act of spending are different functions and serve very different needs, why in the world, when you're trying to get to the other side from A to Z, why would you put unnecessary boundaries in there to save lives? Single-payer health care immediately saves lives. Green energy today immediately starts saving the planet, which saves lives and stops wars, ironically. And then you get into uh, college free college for all or eliminating student debt. My God, private debt in and of itself in this country is the financial situations that most people find themselves in as non-monetarily sovereign entities causes people to commit suicide, leaves them destitute, leaves them desperate, etc. So in my mind, the idea of putting a barrier of, well, we've got to find tax dollars before we can help anybody is quite frankly, murder by proxy. It is an ideological, religious argument in the face of a modern money system that is inexcusable in my book. And those people that advocate for it have said, it's more important for me to get my feels taken care of with soaking and eating the rich than saving lives, which to me, once again, makes them literally a murderer by proxy. I'm sure I'm harsher than you are on that. You're you're, you're harsher than me. I'm definitely with you in the general point that part of the problem is you make it that much harder. And, you know, it's hard enough to get single payer through, to get these things through. Um, But tying it to, you know, well, we need to tax X, Y, Z, and we want it to, you know, specifically come from the rich is it hobbles the program even more. And it makes your arguments more convoluted, like, oh, I want single payer, but only if we can project it, have it quote-unquote, fully funded, yada, yada, yada. It just weakens the argument where you just say single payer and don't talk about any of that crap. Just argue for single payer. I think that the argument for taxing the rich is straightforwardly an argument about reducing their consumption, which not a very use of our collective resources, and to reduce their political power. If we have our one shot where we can have a movement pushing something, we shouldn't be spending that shot on taxing the rich. That shot should absolutely be about single payer and climate change. I mean, these are the central things. If we get to the point where we have to make some big argument, that has to be the thing. The most basic point is if the argument we win is taxing the rich and no one's lives get better, well, then you lose the election and then they come in. What do they do? They said, look how terrible things are. The taxes on the rich are so high, we got to cut them. Not only is it at a certain level immoral because you're not taking the highest priority thing, But on the second level, it's self-defeating. The things that you should have learned from last year's election is that you need to be giving real material things to people's lives. Talk about materialism. That's the thing that we have on the table. And there's an important reason why the Democrats in the early 2000s, the things they focused on the most were Bush tax cuts, which, of course, were redistributive upwards and bad and all that. But they also kept effective demand going and kept people employed. That kind of argument is easy to make, is consistent with at least a certain faction of capitalist interest because they still control the society. It's just their taxes are a little higher and doesn't fundamentally change anything and fundamentally also doesn't improve people's lives. That's the flip side is how terrible the Bush tax cuts didn't win them any damn elections. It didn't help at all. There's a reason this stuff falls apart. And, you know, as much as we want people to metaphysically connected to the idea, well, the rich are doing worse because we raised their marginal tax rates 12% or whatever, people are, they're still living their lives. Their lives are what matters. What's the point? No matter how high you raise their marginal tax rate, capitalists are still going to control the means of production. That means controlling people's working lives. If your boss is still shitty, if your boss is still sexually harassing you, you know, giving you crappy hours, but, oh, his tax rate is 10% higher or 20% higher, whatever, what does that matter to me? He's still harassing me. So you have to give people material things. You have to give them a public option in jobs, a basic level of working conditions that compete with that private option. You need to be able to give them health care so they're less tied and less desperate 
And I may support raising taxes on the rich if we want to get more polemical, expropriating the wealthy or whatever crap like that. But that's not the essential thing that people care about. And frankly, if you read Marx, I'd be surprised that's the essential things that you care about. If you read volume one, his horrific discussions of people suffocating in factories because there's literally not enough air, given the amount of people that they shove in there. It's not like Marx finishes those paragraphs and goes, oh, and we need to raise the tax rate on top 1%, 8.5%. No, he's talking about working conditions. It's sort of weird where you get posture of radicalism and then, you know, tax the rich to fund these social programs. So that's not the essential point. So I want to touch one thing because we're running out of time here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I look at the idea of income and wealth inequality, because, you know, obviously these terms are bandied around a lot, sometimes appropriately, sometimes very inappropriately. But I want to just state for the record that when you provide, and not in just insurance, but medical health care as a right, you immediately eliminate the capital flight from their wallet, if you will, or whatever you want to say, change income inequality right there immediately. And then when you look at a federal job guarantee, you immediately change wealth inequality instantly. And then when you look at things like providing student debt relief, immediately you change income inequality because so much of this inequality comes from private debt-driven economic policy. And that entire neoliberal monetarist nonsense has really caused a chasm of understanding in our movement. People just assume if they have this boogeyman that doesn't exist, it's our government policy. And if we want to have better, our Congress has to do better. But the reality is you want to save, solve for income inequality. It's less the taxation and far more, in my opinion, on providing the goods and services needed by the regular man and woman and providing them with living wages and living benefits. And then they don't have to go into private debt to sustain their basic living. And that right there would eradicate huge amount of upward drift of capital, if you are, of, of money or whatever. I mean, do you talk a little bit about paying on them to address income inequality versus acting from them to lowering the top versus raising the bottom? Well, I think the first thing to say there and really hammer home that point is that the fundamental meaning of inequality is different. When the difference between inequality between having wealth and having income and not having wealth and not having income when that difference is your family starves, when that difference is you or your children don't have a place to sleep that night, when that means that your kid died of cancer because you didn't have the wealth to pay for your kid's medical care, the fundamental meaning of inequality is different with these different types of social programs. That doesn't mean inequality doesn't matter. I and mean, you talk to someone in America today, them not having wealth means very potentially that their kid dies or they die or their spouse dies. It means that they're not able to go to school and have a better life. It means that their kid sleeps on the street. That's fundamentally what it means. If you're in a society where there's housing security defended by public right, where you have a right to a job, uh, shout out to Rolls Carrillo's article, The Government Owes You a Job. When you have these things as fundamental rights, then the difference between having wealth and not having wealth still matters. But it's not the same thing. It's not necessarily a matter of life and death. And I think that's the crucial point. You fundamentally qualitatively change the character of inequality. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't worry about inequality. Quality still matters to the extent that inequality in control and wealth and control over the means of production, inequality in wealth, inequality in, in income, to the extent that they, those drive political differences and can potentially push back against the gains we've made, it's important to hit that conflict head on. But they're not fundamentally of the same character. And that control over our lives, wants, needs, and desires, that's fundamentally why inequality is bad. When you don't have the focus on that, what's the point? If you can give people some sort of control over their lives, if they have more control about what goes on in their workplace, if they have access to what they need in their lives, to housing, to healthcare, to food, then inequality starts you know, losing importance. Fundamentally, when you get to the end point, when money can't buy control over someone else's life, which is fundamentally what the radical goal is, then inequality of money isn't that different. If all I can buy with money is just some extra goods and services and not more of the basic necessities of life, it starts to really lose its importance.
the guy I mentioned, Josh Mason from John Jay School of Criminal Justice, he mentions that the ultimate goal as a leftist should be getting to the point where quantitative comparisons of different people's lives isn't possible, doesn't matter, because people have access to what they need and money can't buy control. I want to say something real quickly. This is super important to me. I talked to Scott Ferguson earlier today. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that came out of this, and I think he's still watching, I hope he gets this shout out, Dr. Scott, uh, and I spoke at length about the idea of the UBI only crowd coming in and talking about robots and stuff like that. This is a problem that is very, very passionate to me. It makes me almost freaking bust into tears over it because I get so angry and enraged. My father died of something called supranuclear palsy, progressive supranuclear palsy. It is something that very few people in the world have. It is very, very minuscule amount of people that actually have progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a destroying of a human being's brain. And all of a sudden you watch them little by little die as parts of their brain shut off and you see them no longer be able to swallow. And all of a sudden another part happens, they stop being able to breathe, they stop being able to do other normal things. All kinds of horrible things happen to them. It is such a small amount of people that it will never be profitable for it to ever have research done on it, for it to ever have medication and treatments or a cure on it. Now, my father passed away in September. And these robot fetishizers, these automation fetishizers that think the UBI only is the way to go, they don't realize how much work is left undone because it's not profitable. It's not profitable to the capitalists they claim to hate. But here we are. We can redefine work. We can redefine a job. We can redefine the way society looks, but they will still talk about these goddamn robots and automation. And we could have solved my father's illness digging into these minor things. So many of these illnesses exist, so many of them, and yet we don't bother actually digging in and realizing how much work is left undone. It's infuriating. It's beyond infuriating. I mean, this is something, one of the craziest things when you get asked, like, well, what jobs would people do? It's like, you know, have you look around in your community, just even basic things. I mean, that is tremendous, horrible story and something that absolutely would be something that I'd want a job guaranteed to devote it to. But even basic things, just like the quality of the New York City subway, the quality of basics and what resources you have available in your local community. There's so many basic things that you walk around. It's like, why isn't someone doing that? Or couldn't someone do that? Yes, someone could. There are all sorts of things that you can make a city better, a suburban area better, a rural area better, just basic things that improve quality of life. And of course, the the ironic thing about the robot thing is that all this is happening during a time of true drop-off in productivity over the last decade, that there's a strong argument you made is because there hasn't been enough government spending, and maybe even that wages have been too low. And I mentioned before, Josh Mason has a uh, has a report coming out next month to Thank give you. a shout out. Maybe we're going to talk about it sometime on all this stuff. What I think is a very convincing argument that it's the stagnant economy itself and the lack of public spending, which is the, the ultimate source we're looking for, that's been keeping productivity from going up. And you're never going to have your productivity revolution, robots or not, if we don't get some spending going. And that spending should be for public purpose. And should be about making our lives better and dealing with climate change. There's no magic fix of the market, whether it's marketers saying that if you leave everything to the free market, things will supposedly get fixed, or the techno free marketers who say that if you leave it everything to the free market, they'll fix everything with robots. It's just not going to happen. And there's so many practical things that need to be done that aren't going to be done by robots. And no, nurses aren't about to replace robots. There isn't going to be this huge army of robots that are going to provide the technical and effective care that nurses provide. We need a hell whole lot of more of nurses. You know, it, we've got a few minutes left, and I want to close on this, and I'll let you have the last word. As I look around my life, and I look around my kids' lives, and I look around the things that you know I took for granted growing up, like music class every day, choir every day, uh, gymnastics or physical education every day. I'm watching kids be able to just say, yeah, I want to play football. And they get to go play football every day. And they got to play baseball. They got to play whatever sport was there for the school. They got to play it. Now these kids can't do that because the schools are starving. The state of Pennsylvania is drowning in over $600 million deficit right now 
freaking 600 million shortfall. And that's just the state of Pennsylvania. You look around the other states in the nation, and many of them are absolutely floundering because of a lack of federal spending rate. And so when we talk about jobs not being there, I assure you, everywhere I look, there is work that isn't being done because the man can't profit off of it. And so since the man can't profit off it, and these robot lovers are not realizing how many jobs are undone because the man can't profit on it. And they claim to be revolutionaries, but yet they parrot the man's comments instead of realizing that we can, in fact, fund those kind of jobs so we can make our world better, so we can improve our community. These even should appeal to the Tea Party and folks like that who want to locally administer things. This is an opportunity to allow them local control so that they can influence what they feel is important in their own communities. It infuriates me that people don't look yeah, at it such a lack of vision, you know, of not being able to see how things could be improved. And of course, there is, you know, of concern that you have to be careful about some theoretical, hypothetical public administrator who tries to use job guarantee workers as scabs. And you would want to set up some sort of program that if some local public school teachers are on strike, that administrators couldn't bring in a bunch of job guarantee workers to replace them. And this is certainly an important political point. That maybe we can talk about another time. In the normal way things are, there's no contradiction between having a well-stocked army of teachers and having some person who has some specialty and has some free time or otherwise isn't finding private employment, come in and teach something about their specialty. The, the only limit is your imagination. A lot of people seem to be stuck in neoliberalism and it have their imagination really strangled by what seems possible now. And it may be true that we will lose that political fight over it, but a lot of people in the past have gotten awfully close over this sort of thing. And if we don't get everyone on the same base in terms of how things work, making consistent arguments, and we don't try, then we'll never get anything. Conceding before you even try, you lose either way. Fighting and losing is much different from assuming you're going to lose and then lose. Right. So we are literally out of time, Nathan. It blows yeah. my mind how quickly these hours go. Oh. So without further ado, I'm going to say thank you once again, Nathan, for joining us. I really, really appreciate our time together. I appreciate our friendship very much. Um, and I, I'm going to let you go. Have a great day, everybody. We'll see you later. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. See you. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Mindy Donham. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressive.